Hello chums, and welcome back to a new episode of Deniable Assets. We're pleased with all the feedback we've been getting from you swell runners, and we just want you to know, keep it coming. It helps us pad our egos. Well, ego stroking aside, it does help us gauge how well we're doing. Also, there can be the added benefit of knowing that you can contribute something to the show. Who knows? It Maybe even your suggestions for a topic keep some other chummer from making a bad call and getting geeked. So if you've got a question, send it to us. With that out of the way, let's get into this episode, shall we? Today we're going to be talking about an area I'm not particularly fond of, and that's probably because I've grown out of the constant partying all the time lifestyle. Really? Yeah, now it's just party half the time. But this is part two on our ongoing series about the District of Seattle, and today's subject is downtown. Downtown. More than just a catchy song by Vitella Clark from 1964, downtown is the heart of Seattle. Originally home to the Duwamish tribe, settlers showed up and we can all guess what happened. But eventually the town of Seattle was established in 1869. And here's an interesting little tidbit for everyone who thinks the corpse are trying to take over Seattle. They aren't trying to take it over. They're trying to take it back. Seattle was a company town from its founding. It's always been Corp. In 1889, the Great Seattle Fire destroyed 33 blocks of the Central Business District. And out of those ashes, a grander city center was created. City planners dictated that all new construction needed to be made of brick and stone, since those were fire resistant. But they also dictated that all new construction needed to be two floors above the destroyed mess of the fire. This gave birth to the Seattle Underground. The Underground was abandoned shortly thereafter. It was never meant to actually be a place where people lived. Who would force people to live in a dark place like some discarded garbage or like a freak or monster? Oh, wait. It remained abandoned until the mid to late 20th century when it was made into a tourist attraction. Most of Seattle's history prior to the awakening is pretty mundane. Nothing inc incredibly stellar sticks out. Except, oh, I don't know, maybe some of the greatest musicians of the 20th century. I'm talking Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Quincy Jones, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Ray Charles, and the legend of rock and roll, Jimi Hendrix. Now, Ray Charles, Quincy Jones, and how could we forget the beautiful Ernestine Anderson, we're all from Albany, Chicago, and Houston, respectively. But the jazz nightclubs of Seattle were a place that they developed their early work and made names for themselves. From 1918 to 1951, there was something like two dozen jazz nightclubs on Jackson Street alone, in the International District. There still are some old jazz dives there, so get a chance to check them out. Now let's talk about something that's pretty prominent in the Seattle skyline. It stands at one kilometer in height with 300 floors. And no, it's not a Japanese monster trid. It's the Ake. The Arcology Commercial and Housing Enclave is a vertical slum rising into the air over Seattle. The exterior is impressive and it remains an architectural marvel of the world. But like most things that are really pretty to look at, it's rotten to the core, baby. Originally, this building was constructed by Renraku and was their central headquarters here in North America. 
But in 2059, a pesky old artificial intelligence became self-aware and sealed it off. Then proceeded to, you know, mow down everyone. After several weeks and a file that was leaked to the old Shadowlands, which revealed that the arcology had essentially become a war zone and people were being brutally experimented on, the UCAS finally stepped in and liberated the building. The Ake is now a low-income neighborhood, or a nice way to say a slum. It's been home to about 150,000 people, and the first five floors of the building are a mall open to the public. But I've got a feeling that the UCAS removed a number of the automated safety systems after they took it over. Alright, let's see. Uh, oh, up next is uh, Capitol Hill. It's just north of the Elven District, and uh, this is where our betters live. Our betters. Yeah, that's rich. Well, it is home to Millionaire Row. It's the hipster neighborhood for the most part. Here you'll find independent cafes, fancy secondhand shops. I hear there's even a raw water shop. Raw water? Look it up. You will not be disappointed. I mean, the dreck these people pay for? Come on. Nice little factoid. In the early 20th, it was renamed Capitol Hill from its former Broadway Hill. But it was often referred to by many residents of Seattle as Catholic Hill because the majority of the city's Catholic population lived there. Since we touched on it, the Elven District is just northwest of downtown proper. My oldest sister lives there with her two children. It's a very nice neighborhood, very clean, very reminiscent of the typical middle-class neighborhoods of the 20th. It's a district of metahumans that settled the area after the Night of Rage in 2039. For a long time, it was just dwarves and elves, but it's a place now where all are welcome. It's got a uh, high-awakened population, too. Now, let's move to the International District. It was once just called Chinatown. See, back in the 1800s, America was a place to be for anyone who wanted anything. It was called the American Dream for a reason. And as such, Seattle saw a major influx of Chinese immigrants. After the fire destroyed a great deal of Chinatown, the residents moved to what is now called the International District, centered around King Street. Over time, the district took in more and more, not just Chinese, but Japanese, Laotians, Filipinos, Cambodians, Vietnamese, Burmese, Koreans, Thai, everyone came to settle the area. This gave the International District its flair, and makes it one of the most fun places in all of downtown. I mean that and the nightclub. Yes, yes, I love the nightclubs too. But moving on, before we go off on another musical man crush, let's talk about something we touched on towards the start of the episode, the Seattle Underground. The Seattle Underground, now just called the Orc Underground, is a district that exists below the surface streets of Seattle itself. Following the Night of Rage, much of the city's Orc population took refuge in the underground from the pogroms and atrocities that occurred in the streets above. Now, like the Elven District, this isn't to say other metahumans aren't allowed, it's just a name. The underground has gone through some extensive renovations through the years, but a lot of the old bracework is still there. Old brick archways holding up the street, massive buildings above, and glass blocks that let in sunlight from the street level. Though all the light they cast comes through with a purple hue. Pollution and all that. 
Now, there are tours of the underground available. Lord Strung's Basement has them, but also Big Rhino's Restaurant offers them as well. The Bazaar is a great place to find things with a distinctive orky flair. They also make quality knives on the cheap. You feel like Big Rhino's tonight? You know what? Yeah, I'm good with it. I haven't eaten since this morning, so orc-sized portions do sound pretty appetizing. Chummers, those are really the only interesting districts. You've got Seattle City Center and the University District. One is completely self-explanatory, and the other is just a place for rich people to let their children waste all their money. I'll let you decide which is which. There's also Queen Anne Hill and Magnolia. They're mostly residential districts, though Queen Anna is on the upscale side, so be careful. And there's also Interbay, it's mostly train yards and the Burlington Northern support buildings, but the residents there are some of the most politically active in the city, with a strong metahuman rights movement. Some of the popular places in Seattle include Dante's Inferno. Now, this club has only two other sister locations, one in Hong Kong and the other one's in London. Get this, it's modeled after the idea of the Nine Hells. It's modeled after the Divine Comedies version of Hell. Okay, so this is one of those things that's not what I think it is, isn't it? Yes. Dante's Inferno was founded by Dante Passini. The lowest levels of the club are Purgatory, and once you enter the Inferno, the first seven floors are based off of the Seven Deadly Sins. Every floor has a theme, and honestly, it's like ten nightclubs in one. It's great. Now, when he says the lowest floors, he means from the top. The main entrance to Dante's is essentially on the roof. You march around the outside of the building while climbing this cool iron staircase, and then you enter Purgatory, the first level. From there, you are judged, which means you either paid for a ticket or you know somebody who could get you in and you descend further into hell. Now, also in the downtown district is the Aztecnology Pyramid. It rises 300 meters into the air and takes up several city blocks with 72 floors. Now, it looks like a modern interpretation of an old step pyramid. The exterior is made of artificially grown quartz crystals and lasers were used to etch depictions of Mayan and Aztec mythological beings onto the slabs. Now at night, when this baby lights up, it truly is a sight to behold. Too bad, like the ache, it's all rotten inside. Let's not forget about Federated Boeing. They have a large presence in downtown, with their shipyards and the airfield and their 70-floor office tower. Boeing has a big footprint in Seattle, and always has. It really took off, pardon the joke, in the 1940s, when the United States was assembling its arsenal of democracy after having been attacked by the Japanese. Since then, Boeing has been the name in aeronautics in the Northwest. Not far from them is the Lone Star Security Building. Now, even though they are not the provider for citywide security, Lone Star is still a major player in the private security of Seattle. They give tours of the Museum of Law, we wouldn't know what the tour covers, since I can't show my face around the law, and Clean has his reasons. But I'm sure it's educational, and maybe even fun. Or it could just be all the best episode of Cops, or On Point, played on loop. Now, about some of the local color that you might want to watch your back for. Halloweeners, though they might be on the low end of the spectrum. 
First Nations roams parts pretty regularly, too. Uh, you've also got the Bloody Screamers, the Disassemblers, and the Troll Killers. Also, just about every major organized crime syndicate has a connection here. But, as in the case with the restaurant called Ogiya, uh, just because it sounds like a yak connection doesn't mean it actually exists. All told, the downtown district of Seattle holds about 600,000 residents. Damn, I just realized a sixth of the population is actually in the ache. These are only the official totals, of course, since they don't count sinless into these numbers. It's a lot harder to be sinless in downtown without being harassed constantly by the fuzz. There are a lot of places in downtown, and we only scratch the surface of these, old maze. Seriously, there's a lot more, but we just don't have the time to cover this. You probably need to get back to pretending to work at your wage slave job. Now, whatever you do, or don't do, thanks for listening, chums. Clean and I both hope that the info we give you can help you stay alive just that much longer. Until next time, I'm Mr. Clean. And I'm Wolf. And this has been Deniable Assets. Good night. Good running, chummer. The music for Deniable Assets is written and performed by Johnny and and the Meltdowns. Support Deniable Assets team by donating to our Patreon. Email us at realdeniableassets at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook at the Deniable Assets page.